Hello, I hope everyone is healthy and trying to keep sane at this time. As you guys know, the next couple of episodes are sponsored by Wheel & Yarn, which is very exciting because they're the first company to get on board for a multi-show giveaway. After last week's episode, we had loads of entries and we're going to keep going in the same manner. This week, we're going to be giving away some free Wheel & Yard merch in the form of a sponsored jumper. Keep an eye out on social media and please, please get involved for the chance to win some sweet stash. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode and don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe on your podcast platform. Enjoy. Okay, a big day here. Welcome to episode seven of Wind Your Neck In. And I'm delighted to be able to say we've got one of the most successful and most capped front rowers in the history of the game on today. Uh, a big thank you to John Smith for welcoming us all the way from South Africa. It's a pleasure, mate. Good to be here. Where, where are you sitting at the moment? If I'm in Pretoria, South Africa, where are you sitting? I'm currently in uh, Worcester in England, which is not my home, but it's where I am currently residing with rugby. So in Worcester in England, Midlands. Very nice. Um, I've been, I've been to Worcester. Oh, have you? Uh, what were you? Yeah. What were you in Worcester for? Um, actually, never played there. Although amazing um, uh, facilities and pitch and training facility, incredible. I was actually there to see some of the um, Centurions. Donna oh, Kennedy. Yeah. I think she's um, she's based in Worcester, so I was in Worcester to see um, her. And I was to see. The, I saw some of the Sapper boys who were playing there. Diavol Porkita and um, Vainant Ulafi. So. Yeah, we've got we've had plenty of amazing South Africans come through. I just wanted to check in anyway. Uh, you're in Pretoria at the minute. Um, how is every how is everyone? How is quarantine? How is self isolation? It's it's I mean it's crazy to think that we're we've already done more than three weeks. So we started on the 16th of April, uh, 16th of um, March, and it's yeah it's it's been long to be locked in. Um, our company is in security, so we're one of the essential services and cleaning. So we are at least I'm allowed to get into the office every day, and so we've so security is a big thing in lockdown, especially here. And part of our uh, company is a cleaning company, so we've done a lot of sanitizer and PPEs and, and face masks and that kind of thing. So we've been pretty busy, but it's hard to explain it. I mean, it's like a really long family holiday at home. Um, you know, <laughs> Never so, ending. <laughs> And one thing that has changed is that we, you know, in this last week, schools have sort of gone back, but online, so it's homeschooling. So my wife yeah. is her mornings are pretty much decimated, and yeah. uh, we range from a thirteen-year-old daughter who's pretty much takes care of herself to a sort of six, six twenty-seven-year-old who's um, struggling to struggling to spell bat. Um, <laughs> so. I, t- I promise you, I, I take my head off to my missus at the moment. Yeah, the homeschooling's definitely been a, a theme for everyone I've spoken to. It's been uh, hard work for some of the parents and definitely the respect for the teachers has gone through the roof. Um, if we just focus, I suppose, initially on South Africa, because it's a place I'm really interested in. And I know you've moved back there, having done a little bit of traveling, which we will get to. But it's somewhere that I'm ashamed to say I've never been to yet. Uh, we discussed some of the guys that I've met through rugby and it, it described as the most beautiful country in the world, probably biasedly or maybe not so biasedly, but a place that obviously has loads and loads going for it. How has that transition back to South Africa been? What's the lifestyle like when, you, when you've moved back there? We're definitely going to get on to a bit about the brine because that's some of the best food I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah, look, South Africa is pretty special. I mean, you, you, it's, it's one of those things you speak to any South African, they always talk as if South Africa is, the, is, is sort of paradise. Um, and it is, I guess there's, there's a lot of things that it's got going for it. Its climate is incredible. It has so many different things that make up different parts of South Africa. So you can go from sort of the forests of Nisner to, you know, to the, uh, I guess, the dry lands of, of the Kalahari to the bush felt where we've got uh, all the big five and our animals to the beautiful beaches. 
So we've got a, we've got a huge amount to pick from in terms of what kind, how you want to live, and where you want to live. And then um, you know, it's I guess it's just sort of the way of living. I guess is just it's a lot of it's focused on being out, outside. There's a massive sports culture as well. So you know, you it's just it's it's just an easy way for kids to grow up. So coming back was I mean I loved my time in in, in England. I, I spent two years there. We had two probably two of our best years as a family because we had such good quality time and 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 you know. I mean, as, you, as you're experiencing now, being a rugby player is sort of a bit of a fairy tale. It's not entirely the real world. So, yeah. you know, there we had two years of, of magic for a young family and we had our third kid, actually, just before we came back. So transitioning back home was, was pretty easy. The kids, you know, my son came back. He was, I think he was five at the time and um, he was the only guy in his class who couldn't ride a bicycle because you know, we just hadn't spent that much time outside. Yeah. So um, in the first sort of semester of school, Teachers sort of pulled him up, uh, pulled him out as a like this guy's got issues. You know, you got to teach him how to ride a bike. It's from a lifestyle point of view. You know, we like now we've just moved from Durban a year ago, and um, yeah, Durban you've got the beaches and you've got you know safaris three hours away. Here in Pretoria, we've got you know unbelievable opportunity to get to out to the bush as well. My kids have grown up in the bush, so we've been going on game Amazing. drives and getting into the bush since from a young age. So it's you only really, I guess, traveling. And experiencing other beautiful countries makes you, I guess, appreciate where you come from a little bit more. And sometimes you take it for granted. I mean, we've been living in Durban for over a decade, I guess, on and off when it comes to rugby. And, um, you know, we probably now living in Pretoria, I think we wish we'd gone to the beach more, but it's synonymous with with everything that we do. Most of the time when you get so used to something, you take advantage of it. So life is good in South Africa, I must say. I mean, there's, uh, everyone's got their challenges here. We've we've got a lot of things to deal with uh, that I guess are are, are the taxes of of having a great lifestyle, but we've got to be careful from a security point of view. There's certain areas that you've got to be careful of. We've got a lot of unemployment, which I think influences that, um, that factor. And this, you know, this COVID-19 is, is only going to make that sort of social issue a little bit more difficult. But I think that's almost a global issue currently, not just a South African issue. I totally agree. I think it's causing issues across the planet. And I know that the issues in South Africa are well documented, but I think it's something very easily that people can, you know, someone who's not been there, it's very easy for people to throw those negatives in your face. But when I speak to the South Africans, the culture and the lifestyle that the guys have, um, you know, the, the whole brying culture where you cook most of your meals outside on the brine, some of the best food I've ever had from guys like GJ and Vainan and Diavolt, you know, the, the Bri Boikis and the Poiti, how do you say the Poiti, the pot? Poiki, yeah. The Poiki, um, that's it. Poikis, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I'm sitting, like, just to give you an idea, I'm sitting in our lounge. So, there you'll see that, that's what they call in South Africa a binabrai. So, that's the sort of barbecue area that's placed inside the house. Oh, that's in Obviously, the house. When the, weather's, when the weather's not as good as it should be. And then, if you step outside, that's the outside bra area. So you're going to have two. You know, that's nice. That's very nice. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, because the boys, the boys over here used to take a piss out of me constantly because if you're not using coal, you're basically just cooking on a gas gas cooker outside. So they, they don't like that at all. No, gas is a no, no. It has yeah. an influence over the, te- over the taste of the meat as well. You know? so and I totally agree. And I think one of the things that's gone hand in hand with a lot of the bra food that I have eaten is some of the South African drinks, which have become quite synonymous with... Uh, um, through some of our friends as we discussed and one of the ones that kind of has stuck with me is clippies it's uh, a tasty little drink that you <laughs> you have to be quite careful of whenever you take too many of those uh, I'm trying to see uh, oh yeah actually you've got to make sure that you've always got yeah there it stock. is <laughs> that's plenty that's plenty uh, but yeah a tasty yeah. little drink only to be served with real coke and ice of course yeah 
Yeah, I see that fat boys can't go the full full cream cook. They got to go the, the diet version. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I mean, that's awesome. But I think, yeah, definitely a country. Uh, my wife and I have said that we will get out to and we'll, we'll definitely go and meet some of the pals and friends that we've made through rugby, which is, I suppose, where we should we probably should start the rugby conversation. And I know you hear kids in South Africa growing up playing barefoot, and that's something that always takes a lot of people by surprise because the idea of playing rugby barefoot is mental you know you wear boots from whenever you're 11 10 8 and younger over here but is that something that you have fond memories of you know your first early days playing rugby bare feet yeah i think that's the thing i think that you you sticks in your memory when you start learning the game in, in south africa it happens early and yeah at the age of five getting into six you're starting to learn the skills of racks and malls and passing and and understanding sort of the do's and don'ts of the game tackling yeah the, the little guys thought smashing each other at sort of five, six years old here. And then, but the thing about the, the barefoot rugby is that, you know, it's, it's a winter sport. So a lot of your memories are like those first five minutes, it's just freezing, your feet are like numb. Yeah. But I think that it's it, one part of it does toughen you up, but the other part of it, it does sort of equal things out a little bit. So, you know, with boots, you get a lot more traction, you get a lot more uh, speed. And so when you're barefoot, it's a little bit, tougher to step and to mm. accelerate and to i guess it sort of slows the impact down but uh your feet are pretty tough mate and you have to endure the cold <laughs> quite heavily i can imagine i can imagine i don't think that's going down particularly well in belfast in december if i started trying to get the lads to be playing barefoot um, now that i'm in pretoria it's obviously a bit colder down here but i mean in the winter here, yeah, when we played um, as youngsters, you know, you're probably looking at getting the, 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 the worst it probably would get is about minus one to sort Ooh. of three degrees. Yes. So it's not like in the UK, but it's certainly cold enough to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Cold enough, cold enough. So I suppose then, um, just in relation to your story, John, you, you went to Pretoria High School, um, which has a massive worldwide known rivalry with schools like AFI's, um, which is one of the big Afrikaans speaking schools in Pretoria. What was that school experience like? Because I know for a fact, you know, with the guys I've mentioned, that schoolboy rugby in South Africa is is top of the tree. I think the backbone of what of what makes rugby such an important thing in South Africa is the fact that it's such a massive, massive thing in schoolboy rugby. Playing rugby at school, I mean, I, you know, I started off, I actually started late as a South African kid. I started playing when I was 11 years old. I played football in, 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 uh, when I started. And as you can well see from my physique, that didn't last very long. So <laughs> rugby started a little bit later. And, um, but most kids start, like I said, five to six years old. And, and it's easy to pick 20, 30, 40 schools that are good and competitive and have a, got a decent rugby program. So, of course. Um, and it also is a lot of street cred when it comes to high school. I mean, for me, at Petrova Boys High, rugby was, was a really big thing. And um, Saturday mornings at 12 o'clock when the first team played, that was it. Whether you were everyone, it was compulsory. The whole school, we were 1,500 kids. The whole school watched the first team play at 12 o'clock. Kids, parents, sisters, girlfriends, everyone came. So, you know, there were times when we had between three to 15,000 people at a schoolboy game, you know, on a weekend. That's crazy. So, that's, a, that's a massive crowd for kids that age, but, it, but an amazing yeah, experience, I'd imagine. Yeah, you spoke, you spoke about Afis. I mean, Afis is our, our derby, and we look, we didn't get to beat them in, in my five-year tenure. We haven't beaten them uh, nearly, nearly as much as they've beaten us, but... That, that game is, without doubt, a minimum of twelve to 15,000 people stacked around the field watching wow. sort of the Pretoria Derby. So it's a big, big part of the culture here. And there's a huge focus on it. And, and there's just so much competition as well. I mean, you think about it, just in my one school, and Pretoria Boys High probably wouldn't even feature in the top 20 of rugby schools in terms of performance. 
but it's 1,500 boys. You know, it's, 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 it's a huge amount of competition. And, and when everyone wants the same thing, you know, it's, it makes it very competitive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you alluded to the fact that you maybe started slightly later, but I'm interested to know, when did it for you become really serious? And I mean that in an in a aspiring professional sense, because I know you had some very, very influential underage coaches, guys like Paul Anthony, who are renowned and the guys who I speak to from that area and speak very passionately about his influence. I mean, what age for you did that kind of ambition become quite a reality? I think for rugby, for me, um, it was, I mean, I was sports crazy from, from a young age. You know, I was, it was a tennis racket or it was a cricket bat or it was anything. Uh, and so I loved sports and going to a school like Petrua Boys High was brilliant. There was just ample opportunity to play everything and do everything. And, and, um, and, and I guess that's probably the thing that I've, I've got slightly against current schoolboy rugby is that it's, it's super, super serious. Uh, you know, yeah. schoolboy rugby is like almost become like college football in the States. And you've got now companies sponsoring first team rugby uh, teams and you've got uh, you know, physios and, and biokineticists and S&C guys, it, it, you know, and for me, it was serious when I played, but it was, but I, and I loved it, but it was still a sport and it was a game. And, you know, sometimes I think that that allowed me to, you know, really love the game and aspire to be something more. And at the time when I was playing, you couldn't be a professional. You just wanted to be a springbok. Yeah. So I guess the dice took it seriously was when, um, uh, when I was finishing school and it was in 1906. So we were the first crew of, I guess, 18-year-olds that were able to be contracted because the game had just turned pro. Yeah. So when a, an agent comes to your dad and says, you know, we'd be keen to get your son over to Natal at the time, you know, what do you think? And he was like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, would your son like to come and play rugby professionally? You know, at that stage, I was booked into university in Pretoria to study physiotherapy and hopefully carry on playing rugby. And to be fair, probably never really get there. You know, as an English kid in, a, in an Afrikaans city, I, I, if I'd stayed there, I don't think that I ever would have played for South Africa. And, you know, that when I had to then change my entire sort of life plan, that was sort of when I realized that this was something worth looking at. And then that was the first moment. And then I, I went and studied, I guess, at, at, in Peter Marisburg. That was a disaster. After seven months, I'd spent four months on tour, you know, and then eventually I said to my dad, I said, I'm wasting someone's money, you know, so I need to make a call here. So he said, well, what do you want to do? So I said, obviously, as a kid, I said, I really think this rugby thing might work out. So he said, well, okay, well, you've got, I reckon you've got until you're 20, you know, see, see how it goes. So luckily by the age of 20, I managed to play a few first team um, first class games and yeah. represent represent a few uh, um, t uh, national teams under 19 and 21 yeah. and um I was fortunate that it all worked out. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting because those those life gambles can sometimes be big defining points within the story of what you have and you know I think everyone has them but I think before we move on to that uh, process of moving to the Sharks because it's something I'm really interested in the the schoolboy rugby in South Africa one of the main things that people will be aware of is Craven Week because it's a collection of the best rugby players underage and they pick you know the schoolboy teams off the back of it one of the things that did pop up was that's the first time and one of the real opportunities that people will get tested at Craven Week and there's obviously been a history and 
you know, a, a kind of recent revelation that there's been some doping issues in and around Craven Week. And I'm curious not to know whether that's happening, but at that age, what sort of pressures do you think kids, South African kids are being put under to, to be the biggest and the strongest? Or is there a real grip of that being taken and is it starting to become more in control? Yeah, look, if it, you know, you look, you, you look at the kind of stories that have come out and you're right. If you, if you talk SA rugby uh, and school rugby in South Africa, it's the first thing that people will ask about. It's around steroid abuse and, 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 and trying to get bigger, faster and better to, to and, and it's, it's why I alluded to the fact earlier around why I think that there's just too much emphasis being put on, on schoolboy rugby first teams. And, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, in this in this country, rugby is such a big thing, and there's this. I mean, we got just under sixty million people with a, an employment rate pre-COVID nineteen of around thirty to thirty-five percent. So there are a lot of people who need any kind of ticket to get a meal, and rugby yeah. is is one of those easy tickets. So if you've got half a chance and you can make it, it really does give you a, a platform to be able to survive quite quite well. So. The pressure that is on, on these kids is crazy. I mean, you can think about it. I'll, I'll play you a scenario out where a young boy goes as a 17-year-old who's weighing uh, 76 kilos and he's a lock or a flank and he's really skillful and he's, you know, he's got huge potential and he goes to a coach and he says, oh, you know, I'm really keen. I want to make the Craven Week side, which is the, the provincial side that, that will give him a, you know, and the you know, the coach goes, well, you know, if you were just five kilos heavier, you probably have a better chance. You know, it's not just something where I think the kids are, are, are being pushed in the wrong direction. I think there's a, there's a ter- terrible amount of guidance that comes from, you know, those that, that uninformed coaches and parents, I guess, that also don't seem to see the, the negative in that. Look, the other, the other reality is that because it's such a big thing, I mean, I, I, I don't think, and I've been to New Zealand and I don't think that there's a, a schoolboy rugby culture stronger than, than what we've got here. And, and, and because of that, it's, it's big street credits, big opportunities, it's bursaries, it's, uh, it's, it's all sorts of things. And because of that, you know, SA Rugby as an as a, as a, as a organization have done whatever they can to, to be able to test at Craven Week. And that was some years back to be able to do this testing. So the reason why I say this is that, South Africa is the, is the country, is the rugby-playing nation that tests, does the most tests at schoolboy level in the world. So, so obviously, we will, probably, we will always get more positive results. We're testing more boys. You know, we've gone into schools. We've had to get buy-in from headmasters to be able to test kids that are under 18, albeit anonymously, they, 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 have, to, they have to be able to present. So, shall I say, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that has raised its head through, I think, making it too much of uh, too much pressure at a schoolboy level. So, is it clever? It doesn't have an effect on the Springboks. I think it'll only have an effect on that individual in terms of his health and the fact that he will get caught. There's just yeah. no ways you can get through the under twenty one level. And I and I, and I sit in a lot of these committees. There's no ways you can cheat and get away with it. You might get away with it at school, but you just can't get away with it through your under 21 and under 19 age group years either. So it's, it's something that needs to be squashed out. And I think the only way to do that, which has obviously been a recommendation from me, is, is to create a lifetime ban for, for the steroids that are used to make you bigger, stronger and faster, the steroids that are used for, you know, to, to cheat the system. And I think if you, if you start throwing a few life bans at a few teenagers, it, it'll start changing the, um, the, 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 the scenario quite 
dramatically. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the only other nation that I know of that has similar issues around it uh, because of the amount that they test is, is actually Wales. Weirdly enough, the Welsh uh, go in and test even in the amateur senior men's rugby and they've had some really startling results in terms of the amount of, of doping tests. But I think your point's definitely valid in that they do test more. Like I knew growing up in the Irish system, I never once got tested. The first time I got tested is whenever I became a senior pro at Ulster. So I think those are all things. And I think, like you've said, the suggestions that guys like you can make will make massive difference in going forward and improving the system. So for, for you, I think one of the, the really interesting things that you kind of alluded to earlier was the question around how you ended up at the Sharks whenever you grew up playing in Pretoria, which is obviously the Bulls. And it has a really strong culture of bringing through professional rugby players from that area. So if you could maybe discuss and tell us how you ended up over at the Sharks and then we'll discuss some of the success or success yeah. and guys you played with. I mean, my story is super unglamorous in terms of how I ended up there. My, I got two older brothers and they, the, the, the oldest of them studied in Durban. So he was a, to start off with, he was a banana boy, which then became the Sharks. So he was a super Sharks fan. So I was indoctrinated from a young age. So at Petrura Boys High, when I got there, I was supporting the Sharks, me and about three other guys out of 1,500. Awesome. So, I mean, and it was just, it ended up being more of an irritation. I did it just because it irritated everyone else. Ended up playing for the Bulls in my uh, in my standard nine and my matric year. So the natural progression would have been to carry on there and study there and hopefully play for the Bulls. But when this offer came through that I mentioned to you about you know taking up a contract with Natal, I'll never forget. My dad went to the manager at the time and uh, and he said, "Look, you know this is uncharted territory for us. Uh, he's got this offer and you know he's actually already registered to study here at Tux and and and, and stay in Pretoria. Is there perhaps something that you guys can do to make that easier because you know this is sort of bursary free university and sort of a salary and um <laughs> the, the manager said to him in very broken english because there's not a lot of english in pretoria yeah. uh, he, said, he said in very broken english he says i wish your son all the very best to do and wow. so you know he sort of i think it irritated my dad so much that he just said Durban is the place and I tell you what, if I hadn't made that decision, I don't think I would have been able to have achieved what I did. You know, I, it was nine months from the day that that guy told my dad, wished him luck for my career. It was nine months later that I played my first first class game for Natal Sharks. So um, that would never have happened in Pretoria for an English kid, you know. So it's, uh, it's just weird how things will work out. And, and then, you know, I would now say that although I'm back in Pretoria, I'd still call Durban my home. It's where I grew up from the age of 18. Yeah, I think it's you spent the majority of your life there and you had some amazing teammates, some of which I've played with and guys like Johan Muller and Ruan Pienaar, but even more to, to go with that, you played with a lot of guys through the Sharks that you also ended up playing with South Africa for, like guys like The Beast, who are household names in the world of rugby now. And you two kind of go in tandem with that kind of fearless front row that people would have played against I wonder in terms of that South Af uh, that, sorry excuse me in terms of that Sharks team that you played in are there any guys that stand out from start to finish as guys that really just you thought these guys are one of the most talented I've ever played with oh, man, I was fortunate I started with the, the sort of the legendary team of the 90s which was led by Gary Tashman and coached by Ian McIntosh and they had Andre Joubert Mark Andrews Wayne Favey Oli LaRue and the names just went on Joel Stransky yeah. who used to be a part of that team as well and it was a privilege to be able to do my apprenticeship underneath those guys. And then I grew up, you know, my era was sort of the Trevor Halsteads, the Butch Jameses, the Johan Millers, and the Beasts, Bismarck, you know. So very, very fortunate to have been able to play alongside some seriously talented players. You know, I think if the guys that I, I guess were stalwarts along the way, um, you know, Butchie sort of 
always comes to mind because we shared a, we shared digs together. You know, we, we probably in our first in our younger years, from under twenties all the way through to the age of twenty three, twenty four, we always sort of shared a house and got up to all sorts of mischief. And Butchie ended up, you know. Uh, playing in that side with us in 2007 as well. So Bucci was a phenomenal player. He spent some beautiful seasons in Bath. Um, Johan Miller was a delight for me because as a hooker, having a guy like Johan Miller as a line-out option and a jumper and a caller was incredible. And I hear you. Pinar, that was one of the things. Uh, I used to love throwing the ball to Johan. I was just throw it out there. It didn't matter where it went. The big man would just go and grab it somewhere. He got a nice, nice big uh, collection area, that man. So yeah. that was always good. And um, and Ruan Pinar, I mean, he was, you know, he... he, he you know, I actually had this interview about two days ago and I said, you know, if Ruan had been given a bit more time at 10, he probably could have been one of South Africa's best 10s. You know, he had some amazing games there, but he just had so much talent. So, yeah. oh, man, Trevor Halstead, whenever the lights went off, you know, you just sort of give Trevor the ball on a short line and he'd run over 13 guys and sort of get you over the advantage line. So, to list all the players that were legendary, but they're, they're, those were some of some outstanding teammates. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think uh, Johan and, and Ruan, for, for me anyway, I was young kid whenever they, they came to Ulster and the impact they had was just unbelievably impressive the way they carried themselves and changed the culture to a certain degree you know I think Johan came in and within I think it was within about a week or two he, he was club captain I think that he spoke and everybody well I anyway I just shut my mouth and listened to what he said but to name some of those guys amazing rugby players amazing squads and then I suppose reflecting on that time with the Sharks you know on the wrong side of a couple of finals in a mixture of the Super 12 and 14. Do you ever reflect on those times when we've named some of the great players as to why you just couldn't quite get over the line? Yeah, she said probably the, um, that probably the most frustrating aspect of that entire, what was it? I started in 97 was my first game with the Sharks and my last yeah. game was in 2011. Yeah. So over 13 to 14 seasons, you know, we were able to win one, well, I won one trophy with, with the Sharks, uh, well, two, and, and a 21 Carry Cup in 97 and a Carry Cup in 2008. We lost, uh, a, a, I think it was a Super 12 final against the Brumbies, but I yeah. think we were, we were the second best team. You know, it was sort of, we played away from home and it, the Brumbies were pretty hot that year, so it sort of was understandable. But uh, that 2007 final, we were just, we were red hot. We were unbelievable the whole season. And we controlled that whole final, you know. So that was that was the hardest pull to swallow. But uh, it felt like hundreds of and just not enough titles in, in, a, in a decade span. Yeah, and I think that seven title uh, was one against the Bulls. Did it hold a certain type of difficulty to swallow because of who you were playing? Look, I mean, we were the two sort of teams that were... When we lost that game, it was hard to swallow because we were supposed to get on a bus the next day and drive seven hours to Bloemfontein together into the World Cup training squad. Yeah, and um, I just you know there were a handful of us, probably four or five, that just couldn't deal with that. So we just we waited until that afternoon, and we drove on our own a little bit later just to try and process a little bit more. It was uh, it was it was hard not to, to check. Not that the Bulls did anything; it was not their fault. I mean, they well it was their fault, but I mean they didn't <laughs> do anything untoward. It's just that we hadn't been able to process it. But I guess when we got to Bloemfontein, there was a host of them waiting for us. You know, to congratulate us and 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 sort of uh, the humility that they showed there, I think went a long way for us to to regroup as a, as a different team as the Springboks. But man, I don't think I don't think I'll ever truly be able to heal properly from that final. That was difficult, and there are a number of factors. You know, I was I was off the field. You know, so for the last 15 minutes, I'd been subbed, and yeah. so had Percy Montgomery. So either one of us had been left on. 
we would have given that kick to Butchie, you know, which which would have sealed the, the tournament. And uh, but you can reminisce about these things and think about it as much as you want. It sort of turned out the way it was. If you asked me if I would swap that for the the trophy a few weeks later. I wouldn't, you know, so I guess I've got to take the good with the bad. Absolutely, and I suppose that's the perfect time for us to move sideways to the South African career, which was obviously everybody knows decorated with the World Cup in 2007, but you actually started your international career in your debut in 2000 at the age of 22, which we briefly alluded to earlier. You know, you broke into that Sharks team and shortly after you were capped uh, when South Africa beat Canada 51-18 actually in East London a strange place to play the game um, do you have any fond memories of that debut? But all I can remember is that I missed my first line out and panicked <laughs> for the next 15 minutes you know, and I just thought geez, like, is that my chance gone? That's it you know, I had one chance and of all the teams in the world to lose a line out to it would be Canada you know, it just didn't make sense so um, that was that was pretty much all I remember. Um, that 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 uh, national anthem, singing that the national anthem beforehand was pretty epic and emotional. But yeah, special special debut. You just never know what's going to happen after your debut. Yeah, of course, you never know which way it's going to go. But I suppose when you when you take that box and you're assuming the sort of character you are because of the success you went on to have, I can imagine you were just desperate to keep yourself in that jersey but I wonder did you allow yourself to enjoy that night did you go into London and have a few beers and celebrate properly or were you so totally focused on the rest of your career <laughs> I'm trying to remember the nightclub there's only one nightclub in East London to be fair and, and uh, I think it was called Bubbles or, or, or I'm not sure I can't remember but yeah, yeah. Um, my girlfriend my, my wife now my girlfriend then at the time had flown in with my best mate so yeah the, the the two of them joined me and we had a we had a very good night and that's what that's what rugby's about I mean for me personally you know uh, you have to celebrate the, the successes that you have or else it can be a very underwhelming um, and lonely career so I suppose so off the back of discussing the, the debut I think you went on to record one of the most impressive feats in in modern time because as a front rower, I know what our bodies go through, but between October 2003 and June 07, you played a record 46 consecutive test matches for South Africa. The longevity and toughness that that must have taken, and at times probably just brute stubbornness, is amazing. What, what do you put that period down to, of just being able to muscle your way through tests where I can only imagine your body was hanging together? <laughs> I think I'm like a, a really... I'm like a classic car with really high mileage and a terrible uh, service history. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it was, it came down probably to the fact that Jake, you know, backed me massively as a coach, you know, he backed me massively. And, and I think he got a lot of comfort out of having me there and involved. And so, uh, I mean, I, I remember on more than one occasion, I think I, it was against Scotland, I think in, in Port Elizabeth where I did my, my calf in a, in a, captain's practice and basically then just lay down until the game strapped the cough and just made sure I stayed on the blind side but I sort of had to get through the game so I played a I played it 45 minutes yeah I got to half time and five minutes after and then got pulled by, by literally hiding as wherever I could and um and again so then there was one game against France where I pulled my hammy in the warm-up and again just sort of strapped it Hit in the blind side. The French only came down the blind side once, and they scored through me with really rigidity. So, uh, yeah, I think 
probably at the time it was probably an over-reliance or, or, or maybe I was just too much of a comfort blankie, I suppose. But it seems crazy, mate. But sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I, I really do feel those 46 games in a row. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I wonder, um, you, you touched on an over-reliance. I suppose I would probably look at it differently. Do you think even just when you were there, there was your leadership qualities almost sometimes you need people in teams that you know you can almost describe them as the glue and they just the team plays better with them in it is that maybe what jake white saw in you because we'll get to your relationship with him uh, later on in the lead up to the 2007 but you do have these players and you'll have played with them who just the team plays better with them in it and it meant that at times you had to just suck it up and play on but is that maybe more of it than than anything uh it's a difficult question to answer because it's sort of like playing your own trumpet um i'd like to think that i was that guy i'd like to think that i gave guys a sense of calmness and direction it was the thing that i enjoyed most about being able to lead guys is sort of you know keep the waters slightly more sort of tempered in, in when times are tough but you know, i guess you know it's in hindsight you know there was a number of other guys that could have captained that side i think in, in that era and it's sort of sometimes there's a bit of luck involved when it comes to um you know being able to play for so long you know we, we had another discussion this earlier today with some of the Kiwi with Jeff Wilson and Tim Horan and we were our task was to pick the best Springback Australian and All Black sides of the of the professional era and then throw them all together and pick a, a, a best World 15 in the professional era from those it's three nations jobs. it is a tough job and a lot of guys who played 100 tests for their country didn't make the cut and um, it's just because there's so much competition and getting to 100 tests or getting to 46 in a row it requires a bit of good luck and good fortune of course. you because know, you, 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 you know what it's like it's a physical game you know you can get a cold you can get a, a tweet hamstring you can get you can slip in, in in the pool and do your ACL I mean it's just there's so many things so to be able to play consistently and and, and I look at my career I played for 15 years and I got, uh, I got, I got 111 tests, but I probably have got not that many more Super Rugby games because, by good fortune or not, all my injuries were around provincial and 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 franchise rugby and club rugby and not international rugby. So I only ever missed one season in in 11 years. You know, I only missed the 2002 season, which was definitely one worth missing, to be fair. But <laughs> that was all I missed. You know, I had nine surgeries and still managed to play 111 games. John de Villiers, I think, has had six knee reconstructions and he's he's the same you know so yeah. uh, not everyone has that sort of good timing or the good luck i guess so yeah i suppose in whilst discussing your south african career one of the things that stood out to me was 2003 in preparation for the world cup there was a pretty interesting discussion around a camp that you guys headed to called camp staldrad is that a good pronunciation or is that per <laughs> I- yeah you, you, yeah, you said it pretty well. I must say, Camp Staldrat. Do you know what Camp Staldrat means? Yeah, I actually do. It's Camp Barbwire. I couldn't believe it when I read it. Well done. Is, is, that, is that right or is that wrong? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so because obviously I wanted to make sure I was prepared for you, John, but whenever I read that, I, I kind of saw in tandem with the article that I, that I drew up that said Camp Barbwire, and I was going, right, well, this camp have been a fun, exciting trip that these guys went on. What was that like? Mate, it was three days. I mean... I mean, I, I don't, so yeah, we used to have what they called national service. So you'd have to go in the beginning. When my brother, when my oldest brother was coming, I came out of school. It was compulsory two years of national service in the army. My second uh, brother, the middle brother, he did one year. And then obviously it got canned just before I got out of school, which, uh, <laughs> which my brothers are very upset about. But uh, it's, 
it was, I guess, three days of, look, each coach thinks that he's got the answer in terms of what to do to bring a team together. And when it comes to, and the idea here is that I think that at the time, the coach had just taken confidence in one or two of the wrong kind of people, very military-based type of background. And we spent three days in an army camp. You know, we, we had to leopard crawl over you know, burnt fields. We had to carry logs uh, for hours. We, we didn't sleep for three days, so no sleep allowed and no, no chow. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I could keep you busy for the entire day on stories and the things that happen there that make absolutely no sense. And if I could go back and do it again, I probably would. I learned a lot about myself and a lot about mm. people in that three days. And I think that's probably what, what my brothers got out of the army is that it does it makes it toughens you up makes you realize what the body can do i mean i used to dread fitness sessions as any friend i did but you know once you've been through three days of no sleep and physical duress you realize just what the body is capable of it actually does change your mindset quite a bit so it helped us absolutely zero for a world cup which showed we were lucky to get kicked out by the all blacks in the quarterfinal and then we came home as an embarrassed group of players but we just hadn't done enough rugby preparation to be able to be competitive at that World Cup. And in, in fairness to the coach, we didn't have a group of players at the time that were ever going to be good enough to win. It was just one of those cycles where uh, we had all of, all of the sort of greats had been retired or gone overseas. And we were a young group. And a big part of that young group ended up becoming the 2007 squad. So it certainly wasn't um, a complete waste of time. We still talk about those over a few brandy and cokes, and uh, the stories still make us laugh to this day. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, maybe next time we're not uh, engaging on a forum like this, I'd love to hear some of them. But I do think the reason I brought it up wasn't just because it's a, an obvious discussion point, but in the pursuit of that 2007 uh, success, you you do what what you find is with guys like yourself or guys like Donica O'Callaghan, who we had on the pod. There's a trajectory and a lifespan and a journey that teams and groups of players go on and I think um, without speaking for you I would imagine that your preparation for 2007 was slightly different off the back of it maybe you were allowed to feed in some information to someone like Jake who you clearly had a good relationship with because in 2004 he made you captain and I suppose separate to the obvious uh, responsibilities and, and issues like with the race and politics that goes on in South Africa your influence towards that preparation for 2007 must have been really interesting Did did you have an opportunity to feed some information in off the back of the 2003 Camp Daldrad experience? Mate, without a doubt, everything we do uh, builds up a, I guess, a, a line of memories that, that we decide what are we going to take from that and keep in our arsenal and what are we going to make sure we don't ever replicate. So, yeah, 2003 was a massive learning curve for a lot of us. I mean, a skulk burger at the time was just 19 years old. He got, he got forced to shave his head you know, just to keep him humble because he was this, uh, he, we didn't, you know, the, the hierarchy of the team didn't want to, want him to think he was some rock star 19 year old playing in a world cup so they made him shave his hair you know so silly things like that that you you pick up those things along the way but uh, that you don't want to be able to put as part of your culture of a team that you might be with in years to come and that i guess is just the building up of experience and uh you know in, in 2007 we had a, a, a group of players that were far better prepared far more talented i guess at the time that had been able to develop and also knew what you know it's like you know putting your tongue on that nine volt battery they, we knew what what that was we'd we'd been pretty low you know we'd, we'd sort of struck out and we knew what that felt like and it felt terrible i mean I, i'll never forget when jake asked me to captain south africa in 2004 i said to him i will as long as you promise me that being a springback is what i always thought it would be and not what it was last year and that really was 
was be able to get to a team that was able to you know, compete for the number one spot in the world, which is what every South African you know, is born thinking and uh, believes. So, it, yeah, absolutely, 2003 was a massive learning block. There, and, and not all of it was bad. A lot of that stuff, that toughness we took as a group, I mean, I can comfortably say that I'm pretty sure that no one that ever played against us from 2004 until 2009 found it very comfortable. We were an uncomfortable group of players to play against. You know, we were very physical, very big, and we enjoyed the sort of the darker corners of the room. So it was it was definitely a big well one of the pieces that 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 I guess made the puzzle of us being able to get to 2007. The diversity, I think, was something that only for the first time we took you know, time to develop. And diversity in our country is, is quite different to most. And we've got 11 different countries. We've got many different colors, many different religions, and ma many different forms of, can I say, education. Some guys are fortunate to be private schooled. Some guys don't have the ability to school. We had guys in our World Cup squad that didn't have the opportunity to finish matric. Then we've also got, we, you know, we've got guys that are, suffer from, in the townships, from alcohol fetal syndrome, which is, you know, when their mothers drink while they're in the womb. And so there's all these things that you've got to put together into a melting pot that, that is built around respect and tolerance. And um, we just put it all to, into a pot and we, and we just said, this is who we are. These are this is what makes us up. You know, we all are different, but we do have one common goal. And that was the plan that Jake had put together for us, which we had to work extremely hard on to get to 2007 to France. I find that comment, you know, the respect and tolerance really, really interesting because uh, quite often rugby can be perceived as a uh, dictatorship and, and, and that's whenever teams don't necessarily get the best out of um, what their abilities because it seems like you guys understood, well, went through a process of understanding what each other has been through, understanding what he, the other challenges that each and every one of you's had. And that's probably why the success followed along with all the hard work. But on the relationship with Jake, what do you think was it that really instilled the confidence in, in him for you to guide that group going forward? Was it, did you speak a lot or did you just allow your actions to, to kind of reflect what you wanted? You see, Jake and I's relationship started way back, way before 2004. You know, okay. um, in fact, my first game of, uh, for my first team at school was in 1994. And um, I was 15 years old at the time playing for Petro Boys High's first team in my first game against wow. a school called Jeppy. Now, Jake was the like legendary Jeppy first team coach. You know, he was, he coached teams with the likes of James Dalton. They, they, they smashed people up. They were just, they were a super good competitive rugby school. And it was his last year's coach in my first year as a first team rugby player. And, you know, he came and then from there he went to, at the time called Transvaal, but Gauteng Lions. Yeah. And he spoke to my parents. He tried to get my parents to not go to, to not let me go to Durban, but come to Joburg. And, and then I was picked in his under 21 team and I captained that side. So I'll, our relationship started because he, he, he saw me in that leadership role from an under-19 and an under-21 point of view because he was always one of the coaches in that era of that three or four years. So, yeah, I think he was comfortable with the fact that he'd worked enough with me and understood how I sort of went about things and what made me tick, that he could trust me with the biggest job that he would have ever have got and ever would have ever had. Yeah, and I think you're, you alluded to it earlier that there was loads of leaders in that group, but I am interested because the podcast episode's on you and you're a big name in rugby, is a little bit of insight into how you viewed your leadership and your captaincy. Do you, 
you know, I kind of mentioned it earlier. Was it a very much a, a follow me, or was it a, or was it a do as I say, not as I do? Um, no, I'm not. I'm certainly not a dictator. I I do like to get sort of a, you know, we over here we call it the vibe, but it's it's a culture, it's a team ethic, it's a it's a it's a way of going about things. And for me, it was really about having guys understand what we were doing and either buy into it and or, or express their, their, their views. And, you know, where we were fortunate in 2004, we were so broken. We had no plan. We, didn't, we couldn't even remember one move from the previous World Cup. <laughs> so, and Jake was super, super technical. He came in with a massively detailed plan and a structure of how we were going to play with these monstrous athletes that we had. Yeah. And, and we were just grateful that there was a plan. So it, the buying to the plan was the easy part. So my job as a captain was not as difficult. I was very inexperienced as a captain. Jake managed me uh, well in the first at least year and a half. You know, he'd sort of guided me in terms of decision making. And this is just from a strategic point of view on the field. But from a, an environment point of view, I guess that would be managing egos and any any rugby team is filled with egos and there were a lot of guys that could have captained they were captaining of their franchise teams and had the ability to do what i was doing so my approach to that was to get by and to listen and to understand and to delegate and to give responsibility and to make sure that everything that we ended up doing on a saturday had been approved and brought in by the entire squad and um and that that i think was how our, our team managed to get a bit of success is that we were always quite hell bent on, on doing on, on what we were doing and how we were doing it. There was never, ever someone sort of, you know, doubting our tactics or our methods. Yeah. One in all in kind of attitude. And I think it's an amazing story to hear, you know, you reflecting on it. And I think off the back of that amazing world cup, I have to ask, first of all, straight after the world cup, there must have been some amazing celebrations. You know, you, you've had this massive boiling pot of intensity, you know, drive and work towards this amazing goal. And then when you achieve it, you ha- there has to be a release of some, of some steam. Mate, it was a, an incredible day. It was just more emotional than anything else. So the celebration was not as rock star as you would have imagined. We all went home. We took our wives and girlfriends and friends and family. And we, we got stuck into the team room at the hotel in Paris. And we sat there with a trophy, drinking and taking photos and playing music and it literally until six in the morning. And um, so there was no where we're going. It was literally, let's just let this soak in. And it was surreal, man. It's quite hard to explain. But the first emotion that goes through your mind is just absolute relief. It's four years of toil and hard work and sacrifice and being away from home for over 200 days a year. And you think to yourself, geez, you know, it's like, it's such a relief. It's just a weight off our shoulders. And then... Then, then I guess the next week was worth, yeah. I mean, we killed the poor British Airways flight. They ran out of booze after four hours. The next three days was a bus tour around South Africa. That was super, super fun. Yeah, I can imagine. And I mean, I asked that kind of loaded because I didn't, I knew Vainan Dolafir very well. And he always reflected as saying that he just felt flat in a, in a not negative way. But from an energy point of view, once it was all over, it was just like this release, this exhale. And then he did allude to the fact that you may have enjoyed a beer or two off the back of it, but right, rightfully so and rightfully deserved. So off the back of the World Cup, there's a there's a move over to France, and I, I'm I'm assuming I, I think the intent was to go and stay for two years. So in 07, you moved uh, over to Clermont, and one of the most successful teams in in European rugby for sure, with that coliseum of a stadium. Um, how did you reflect on that experience, and then how, what was the thoughts on coming home after only a year? Yeah, it was a sort of a disjointed chapter, I guess, in my career because. 
the intention actually was to stay longer. I signed a two, a two plus one and, and the oh, idea okay. was to try and stay for the rest of my playing career and, and sort of learn French and just experience something completely different. But it also coincided with Jake not being given the job at South Africa and a new guy being in, uh, put in charge, Peter de Villiers, the first coach of color in the history of South African rugby. So, and this all happened in the first sort of four months of my contract, you know, with Vern Cotter as the coach and what an incredible rugby setup. That's just uh, an enormous rugby team and a culture and a, a city, a very average city, but a, a city that is just psychotic around this, that Marcel, Marcel Michelin is just an incredible place. And, you know, it wasn't, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the best timing because Peter then decided that he wanted me to come back. And at that stage, you couldn't play for South Africa if you were playing overseas. So then, you know, when you get that first phone call and, you know, you haven't quite settled in and your wife also hasn't really um, had the opportunities to, you know, go to lessons and life's tricky in the first six months. Yeah. And then you get thrown the carrot of, why don't you come back and captain South Africa to a British and Irish Lions tour? You know? I mean, I was never going to say no. It was, it was, you know, the fact that he wanted me to come back and to be a part of history and, and make sure that South Africa's first coach of colour was successful was also a big, big drive of mine as well. So, I mean, I'm glad I did. I'm sorry that the Claremont, the French chapter never worked out the, quite the way I thought it would. But um, I think the decision paid off. I mean, we just had an amazing, we had a, we had a magical four years um, after that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, these things happen from time to time in sport. And like you said, guys that I've known who've ended up in France can say that the, the adjustment period can be either, can be really tough and it's sometimes dependent on the makeup of the squad that you, you kind of go into. And if, it's, if it is a largely French made-up squad, it can be tough, particularly on partners, because uh, it's easy for us when we go into training and, you know, rugby is universal and you can still have fun and laugh, but the, the, the partners are the ones who are left sometimes with kids feeling quite isolated but like you said you come back to the Sharks and then the next point is the 2009 Lions test and I suppose you won the series 2-1 and I vividly remember I think that's probably for me I remember being away with a group of guys uh, on like my first lads holiday and we went to this place called Malia and it was just basically a, a week of drinking but we made sure we sat and we watched the second test and I can still remember Mornay Stain kicking that that shot through the through the sticks from well just inside the half and I suppose one of the most interesting things outside of that experience, which we will get to, is that you did something mental in that test, in, in that collection of tests, because as a hooker, there is absolutely fundamentally no way my body surviving moving the tight head. I can guarantee you that. I'm not the biggest hooker anyway. So <laughs> briefly, before we move on to the actual ins and outs of the tests, I think, what was the thinking around moving into the three jersey? And had you played there before? Because you actually took to it quite, quite smoothly. So actually, my career started at Tartet. Okay. I was at Tartet from the age of 11 years old. And so I actually only moved from Tartet to Lucid in under 19 rugby. And in fact, my debut in 2000, um, I had only been shifted by Jake, who was the uh, technical direct, technical assistant to Nick Mallett at the time. And there was a shortage of hookers, to be fair. There wasn't a, there was a huge amount of hookers. And I think they were just trying to find someone to fill the hole. And Jake came and said, you know, you've got to start throwing the ball in. So I think it was three months before my debut. I started throwing the ball and getting the line out going. And I made my debut as, at, at hooker, um, having only started playing hooker a few months before that. So the transition was a little bit easier than most, to be fair, to go from hooker to tight head. I was, yeah, I, I, and I was a big hooker. So it wasn't that difficult. And the upside was I could eat a few more pies at lunch. <laughs> Um, 
and uh, and also the other thing is, you know, you move you move from hooker to tight end, and, and everyone thinks that you're going to be a you know a joke, not knowing that your background was tight end. So, I think I think in the, especially in the first tests, they certainly didn't didn't take into consideration that I might have a little bit of experience in the tight end. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I do think just at that elite level, because in, in Europe, for sure anyway, and I know that maybe the Lions is perceived differently within the rest of the world, but in Europe, and for me, it's something that's held really, really highly. Like that is probably the elite of the elite if you're a European rugby, a British rugby player to get selected for that to go and play against, which was at that stage, South Africa in their pump. You know, you'd won the World Cup in 2007. You'd gone off the back of that, like you said, to have a pretty successful reign afterwards. And to, to go and do that against someone like Andrew Sheridan, you know, who was no slouch either. You know, he was a strong, robust str- scrummager at that stage, I think was was impressive. I just know for a fact, if I'm moving anywhere, it's to the bench. And uh, with a beer and become an Alakadu, I don't think there's any chance of me moving well, to one or three. Well, you you'll remember they didn't pick Sheridan for the first test. They picked uh, Gethin Jenkins in the first yes. test. So yeah. he was the guy that I scrummed against in the first test. I only actually ended up scrummaging against Sheridan as a starter in the, in the third test. Yeah. Uh, once we've made all of our big changes. And that was when uh, Sheridan, I think, Shawsy also was uh, only started later in the series as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think for me, I love the fact. I mean, in France, I played for Claremont. I played on the tight end as well. At Saracens, I played uh, specifically on the prop at a number of Storm games. You know, those Monday night games yeah. with Jamie George and on the lucid on the tight end and and being able to use those opportunities to sort of um, you know, show him a few things and 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 work with him from that point of view as well. Uh, I think that's really where I got my full understanding for hooker was being able to start my career at prop. Yeah, I think it's incredible. I think. Um what an incredible series. And I suppose, you know, that, that was the accumulation of a lot of hard work off the back of 07. But to back up the, the success that you had in 09, that Lions test will live in my memory for a long time in a rugby capacity. And I suppose moving just forward to the, to the 2011 World Cup, defeat to Australia in the quarterfinals was obviously disappointing. And that almost, well, it did end one of the most illustrious careers in international rugby with your 111th test. I mean, what were your memories around the build-up to that and, and how you reflect on it? Yeah, 2011 was a tough, it was a tough issue for us. I mean, look, we'd, we'd, we'd had um, very poor preparation leading up to 2003. We'd had incredible preparation for, for four years leading up to 2007. And that preparation was based around hard work, physicality, fitness. I mean, we were building ourselves up both physically and uh, from strategically from how we're going to play. But 2011 was a bit different because we were, we were a very well-established group. We knew exactly what needed to be done strategically, game plan, skills. That wasn't the issue. It was being able to get to the World Cup and being able to, to get through seven weeks and be able to physically manage that seven weeks with the extra four years on each of us in that, in that period. You know, 2009 probably was where we, we peaked. You know, Lions series victory, beating the All Blacks three times in a row, yeah. winning the, the Tri-Nations. Tri- so 2011, it, it actually it required far more thinking and planning to get us with the right kind of plan to get to that World Cup. And and we took a big risk. We actually did what we didn't do any of the pre-game stuff. And we stayed as green as possible from a physicality point of view. We didn't play any contact games or warm-up games. We got into the World Cup with our first game against Wales being our first real hit out in two months, six weeks. And, um, and, and that actually worked out. We managed to, in the last minute, get a try with Hochart being put through a hole with three. And, yeah. we, and, we, and we won that game. 
And then things just kicked in. We just marched on nicely. We got better and better every pool game. The pool, the pool games got a little bit easier. We got our rhythm. And so we were firing nicely. We felt very little discomfort facing Australia in the, in the quarterfinal. But one thing, there was one thing that did happen. We, we, Heinrich Brousseau, who was our, our fetcher at the time, got injured and he was carrying a rib. And we took the risk of, of picking him and hoping that he would last because we had no one else that would be able to get to the breakdown and, and sort of nullify Pocock. And, and ironically, we were, we were sadly proven right, but we didn't believe that um, Bryce was going to you know, be able to manage the breakdown as well as we needed. So we needed Heinrich, who was probably equally, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, effective at just destroying any kind of ruck ball. So when he went down the first 10 minutes, you know, another legend came onto the field in Francois Lowe, but he was an exp- you know, he was young. He wasn't young the player guy. then that he, that he is now. And, uh, yeah, then it just went from bad to worse. You know, supposed forward pass, Farida Priya knocked the ball on in front of the line, a drop kick that went right. I mean, it was almost like, it was almost like it was surreal, you know, because we did everything to win that test match except win that test match. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a hard game for me. You know, I played 111 test matches and I got a huge amount of respect for referees, but that was the only occasion that I felt that someone had, gone out of their way to make our lives difficult yeah and I think that's a very that's a frustrating feeling especially off the back of everything you put into it and and like you said you know 111 games you're you're later um inducted into the IRB Hall of Fame which is an amazing achievement you know almost whilst you were still playing and do you look back on your international career like you've said with the 111 games you played you couldn't have given much more you put a huge amount into that Springbok jersey and left it in a better place for the guys who came afterwards I hope so yeah um I really do I had a I had a magical career um to be able to play one test for South Africa is a privilege the fact that I got through 10 seasons and um was able to play at three World Cups and win one of them and make such amazing friendships and meet such amazing people and go to amazing places. And you look back at it and you know, you're sitting here and having been retired for some time now, and you just realize what a treat it is to be able to have done that for a living. And uh, yeah, look at some, some always ask if I missed the game. You know, and I think I'm probably in a fortunate position where I played 15 years professionally. You know, I played a lot of test matches. I played for some wonderful teams. You know, I enjoyed my la- my first game as as much as I enjoyed my last game. And uh, and I literally, when I hung that boot up after my last game for Saracens in 2013, it was peacefulness. You know, and I, and that I think is probably my greatest uh, privilege and, and gift, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's an amazing thing to to hear because there's I think it's rare and I'm and I'm and I'm it's great to hear that people do leave the game with on their own terms and with that sort of experience and I think before we move quickly into what you've done uh, since you've left rugby it would be remiss of us not to discuss that period with Saris because that was the building blocks of the really successful eras that would come on afterwards and like you've said you know working with someone like Jimmy George uh, even having the ability to go in and play loose head or tight head for someone like him who's gone on to be an absolute Jamie's my age in under 20s and I played against him the whole way through and his progression has been unbelievable and having people like you around him must have contributed to that so the Sarah's experience as, as a whole did you enjoy your time there what was it like, like living in London and I suppose have you enjoyed being able to watch back and see the success that has been built off some of the things you put, maybe put in place Matt I would probably go as far as to say those two seasons were of my most enjoyable of my entire career you know we had you know, I, I I was hesitant when Ed Griffiths called me about going there after the World Cup. I was like, I'm done. 
yeah, you know, I, I was I was pretty grumpy, and you know, and I, I, as you can imagine, the exit out of that World Cup, it 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 hurt. And he just said, "You should come, you know. We you know we've got this young hooker, and Skulk's playing too much, and this Jamie George we think can be a good thing, and." You know, we, you know, you don't have to captain, you don't have to start every weekend. This is just your role to sort of support. And, and I said, oh, so he, he said, I tell you what, come for six months. If you don't like it, you can go home. So, mate, I went there for six months. And after two years, I was begging them to sign me again. And they, and they mm-hmm. to their credit, they didn't sign me because, you know, Jamie had progressed far enough to be able to take over those reins. And, and, we, and we can see what that decision f- did for Jamie, you know, in terms of him being able to get game time at a young age and then become the player that he is today. So, yeah, I had, a th- we had, my wife, my kids, you know, if I said to them today, guys, after lockdown, we're moving back to St. Albans, I don't think I'd get one complaint. They loved their time there. The, the culture of that club was incredible in terms of how they treated people and the friendships that I, I made in that two years just from a rugby point of view, yeah, that, that's it's it was a significant time for us as a family. Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely the building blocks that were put in place. And I suppose having spoken to Richard Wigglesworth, he uh, he actually referenced quite an interesting story about um, you guys playing touch one day, and you made some sort of line break through on a game of touch, and he he tackled you and <laughs> scraped the the knees and elbows all off you, and he an indication of him uh, being one of the driving forces in terms of the culture and standards that he sets. He said, thankfully, you were quite chilled about it though, and. Uh, didn't didn't end up clobbering him or anything, but I think uh, the the final and semi the semi final in eleven twelve, uh, followed by the semi final in twelve thirteen, and we'll get to the twelve thirteen because that led on to your last game not being what it should have been from a kind of sentimental point of view. But those were important building blocks for guys who were going to be there afterwards to go on and have the success. And that's my point in regards to uh, Richard Wigglesworth. He said that. What people don't realise is there was a lot of suffering and a lot of a lot of hard times before all the good times started. And look, the Saracen story is, is an incredible one, and I think there'll probably be some documentary made on it in, in time to come. But he's a hundred percent right, and I, I and that's the one thing that people that that not in that environment will will never understand is that it just all looks so easy and so flamboyant and so sort of rock stylish. But I, I can, I mean. I can tell you right now, after being there for six weeks, it wasn't that I wasn't having fun. I actually came back to my wife after six weeks and I said to her, I don't think I can keep up. These guys train at a, at a rate and a level that I've never experienced. I think I'm too old. I'm, I'm just, I'm not physically able to keep up with the amount of work that, that they do and the, at the pace at which they do it. And, um, you know, I think she quietly realized how good life could be. So she said, just suck it up and <laughs> work harder. Um, and absolutely, you know, Saracens have, have paid the price um, for things that they've done. And again, you know, we look at, if you look at uh, Australia, you know, there's a, a team there that got caught for this, this a similar thing when it comes to wages and they were stripped of their titles. And, and subsequently in the, in, in the four years post that massively big bust of the, the title holders being caught out from a, from a salary cap point of view, four other teams have been found guilty of the same thing in the Australian league. You haven't read about it because none of them had ever won a league. Saracens were just so good and watching them be so successful. When I left, I knew that they were going to win almost everything. It's just, it was just, you could just feel it. There was just a culture of, of that had been built and worked on. So for me, it's, it's amazing. And, and ironically, my, my next job after retiring from Saracens was to become a CEO of a rugby franchise. And, you know, the amazing thing is, as a CEO of a franchise, you're losing players in South Africa to 
to teams in the Premiership who are who are offering some crazy things when it comes to finances and offshore accounts and image rights. And, but those teams haven't won titles and haven't won so many in such a long time. So the Saracens have paid their, 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 the price and, and that's the way it goes. But uh, there's a couple of premiership teams there out there that could be very relieved and probably keeping very quiet that next season comes and, and everything's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Doing the old Homer Simpson into the hedge kind of trick. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think it would be remiss as well not to just touch on your final game of rugby, which was organised off the back of a semi-final loss to Northampton, which probably took a lot of people by surprise, um, maybe apart from Northampton. But that year, you'd managed to finish top of the top of the log and 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 by some by some distance really as well. But the game was set up against the South African Barbarians, which is an incredibly nice gesture and a nice way for you to finish it off the back of an amazing career. Do you look back to that game and is it, is it, is it still a bit a pinch of salt that you wasn't the final that you wanted it to be, but at the same time you got to go out against an amazing barbarians team on your terms and have your last hurrah? Yeah. Look, I mean, I, 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 I only have fond memories of my time and, and obviously not, not being able to win a premiership or a Heineken Cup in that time was, it would have been cool. It really would have been. And we, and we, we certainly had a team that could have done it. Uh, whether it was by design or by default, you know, them arranging the game for me to be able to finish up on a, on a different kind of note. I mean, the reality is you look at the kind of detail that I go to just for people. And, and, I, and I say this in, in, in fairness because a lot of the things that have been done for me have been done because I'm John Smith, the World Cup winning captain. But at Saracens, they do those things for John Smith, the World Cup winning captain, as well as the academy boy who's studying at the university down the road. But that game was special because, you know, I, was, I played, I think, 45 minutes and then I got put on for the last five minutes at fly half, which obviously was a lifelong dream to you know, play a professional game at fly half. So I was absolutely terrible. I had one kicker <laughs> under pressure, which I fluffed. And so at least it, I don't die wondering. I certainly wouldn't have been a world-class fly half. But uh, well, I, did, I did get my chance, thanks to Saracens. Yeah, I mean, that's the manner in which I was hoping that it would be taken. And it's great to hear that that was the, the, the kind of attitude and, and, and I suppose the whole model of the game. But off the back of the retirement, um, you move and you transition into, as you've stated before, becoming the CEO of Natasha Sharks and an amazing opportunity. And, and you've since moved on after three years to become CEO of security and maintenance company, SSG Holdings, which is, I haven't done a bit of research. It's a very important sort of, as you've, as you've mentioned earlier, a, a very important uh, kind of opportunity within the South African market that's important around security and maintenance and stuff. So in starting first, we discussed it with Donica and we discussed the transition from, for players into the real, the real world, in inverted commas. How did you find it? But more importantly, off the back of having done it and maybe still doing it, maybe still trying to adjust, what do players need to do more of to make that transition as smooth as possible? Because there's no doubt it's never going to be easy, but it, need, there, there's, it seems like there's a gap in which people are kind of almost ignoring these players. Uh, maybe the players are ignoring it to some degree. I'm interested to know what your opinion is on how that can be done better. Yeah, look, I think this is certainly topical uh, in, in the last couple of seasons and years around mental health and the ability to trans, you know, to, to, to you know, transition out of the game into the real world. Because what we do for a living as rugby players isn't the real world. You know, it's wonderful and it's fun. And um, I was actually asked about this by journalists about two days ago, and uh, I just said, you know, if I look at the guys that adapt well and those that don't adapt well, it's the guys that thoroughly enjoy themselves when they play rugby, but sort of knew in the back of their minds this is not really how life is, and they had a bit of perspective. 
it's the guys that had other interests that weren't um, slaves to rugby, I guess, in, in terms of their interests outside of just being single-minded. And it's always tricky because you ask, is there enough thought around this? You know, coach wants to know that John Smith is only focused on being the best hooker in the world, you know. But a good coach knows that John Smith can do that as well as broaden his horizons. So the other guys who've done well when they were uh, broadening their horizons and, and reading and studying and getting experience or networking at functions rather than just sitting in the corner with the other mates. Those are the guys that sort of create a bit of perspective. And while they're creating that perspective as players, they become better under pressure while they're playing. You know, they, you know, you'll, you'll see a change in a guy when he starts having kids and he becomes a father and he realizes that well, there's more to this world than just me, myself and I. And I. So it, it, all these things help or don't help the transition. The other thing that no one prepares you for is that what we do as rugby players, as sports people, is 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 a, is like it's, it's a, like almost like a drug addiction. We've got dopamine that comes into our bodies on a daily basis at training. We're trying to PB on the bench press. We're trying to beat up our best 40 meters. We're trying to you know beat our last season's preseason's fitness stats. And then on Saturday we. 80 minutes, we're up against it's life and death. We've got to beat Northampton or we've got to beat Stade Francais. And there's thousands of people at the stadium. There's millions watching. And it's this dopamine that just rushes through your body for me for 15 years. For On average, it's between 5 and 10 and 15 years of, of dopamine sort of flowing through your body all the time. Now, if there was... If that was all that got dopamine running through your veins for 10 years as a player and you had nothing else that excited you, you didn't collect anything or you didn't study anything or you didn't, weren't interested in anything else, it's very hard to get that dopamine flowing afterwards. And I think that's where a lot of the mental health issues come from is that there's just this lack of purpose. And purpose is, is a difficult thing. You know, at rugby, rugby, purpose is easy. You know, I, want to be a, I want to be the best hooker. I want to be in, the, in one of the best teams and I want to win all the trophies. Purpose is just so simple. Out in the real world, you know, to figure out a purpose is, is, takes a bit more time. It takes a lot more searching inside and asking questions and experimenting with things. And experimentation for a rugby player is difficult because with experimentation means you're going to fail. And we are told you're not allowed to fail. So it's a tricky thing that no one ever tells you about, no one ever talks about. But I do think that the responsibility is everyone's responsibility, from, from owner to coach to manager to agent to parent to brother to sister to friend to fiancé to wife, to whoever, the, to whoever those people are around. But the most of the responsibility should be on the player to sit back every now and again and say, you know, Playing PlayStation on my for the entire Wednesday off is probably not going to help me when I'm when I'm actually done, you know. Um, but having a PlayStation is cool, you know, and having an hour. But in that hour, you know, make sure you set out an hour to stay stay in touch with current affairs, stay in touch with your friends that work, that are at university, follow their careers, you know, get an understanding of what they're doing, you know, think about a career. Think about what you might want to do. What's the worst question you can ask a rugby player? What do you want to do when you retire? Correct. It's true. And they you know automatically what? go into their shells because yeah. they think, oh my God, when am I going to retire? It's this uh, reservation and this acknowledgement that it's going to end eventually. That's, that's the worry. That's the fear. Exactly. And, and why? It's exactly like what I alluded to earlier is admitting that you're going to fail. Because by admitting that you want to do something after rugby, you're actually admitting that you can't play rugby forever. And subconsciously, we, 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 we're not... We're not we're not taught like that. You know, that's not what we're, there's no S&C guy or coach that's ever said, it's okay. It's okay that you didn't, you know, push an extra five kilos this season, but, you know, 
we'll try again next time. It's just not the culture that's driven in sport. And, and that's what you need. You need to be pushed. So to go from that environment that is so easy to define purpose and so easy to measure that purpose, to come into the real world, figure out what that purpose is, and then also know that you can't measure your, 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 your success on a, every Saturday afternoon. It's actually something that progresses over time. You know, whether you're in sales or whether you're in marketing, it's something that you can't actually measure on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. Something that it's built up through years of experience. You know, so it's it's a very very tricky situation. But I think that the players that have adapted well versus those that haven't are the players that weren't slaves to the game while they played it and believed that there was something else to life other than rig. Yeah, I, I think that's it's an amazing way to put it. I couldn't put it better myself. I think. The, the obvious designation for people to end up with is that rugby players will miss the money. I think the money can come and go. I think you're absolutely right. It's the training, it's the camaraderie, it's being in and around the lads every day. And I think, I suppose it leads to my last question. John Smith, the successful rugby player, CEO of two companies, the Sharks and SSG. Is there ever an opportunity for you to move back into rugby? Because there's so much knowledge and so much insight that I think it, it's wasted not in there trying to help other rugby players. I mean, obviously, you could teach me plenty about you know the Clippies and the Veers and the, the Brian stuff, but I mean the really important things about John Smith, the CEO of, the, of whatever rugby club, making sure and ensuring that players are preparing and have, are enjoying the culture that he experienced at Saris. For me, and I could be speaking out of turn, it seems like a waste that you don't, that there's not an opportunity for players to learn that off you. It's uh, my wife busy listening in on our conversation and she says, tell him it's, it's a simple answer. My wife won't allow it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith. I'm sorry. It's just a very interesting point for me as a player. I'm sorry. She, you'll get into big trouble if you call her Mrs. Smith. She, she, oh. she thinks that's my mother's name. So, Look, I mean, I, I, I am still involved with rugby. Uh, it's, I guess at what level? So I, I was asked by the, our players' union to represent them at, at our South African rugby uh, board level. So I'm a council member on the South African rugby board, and that it does give me a certain influence. doesn't really give me any uh, much of a say, but it gives me influence over the direction of SA Rugby. But I also have to look after the interests of players as SA Rugby's biggest asset. I do but you have, know the direction of the question that I mean. You know, I think the, the representation of that is, is, is brilliant, and, and there is definitely a, a role and uh, a need for that. I mean, John Smith, CEO of a club, or John Smith, managing director of a club, and I, I appreciate I don't want to piss your wife off, but... That's, that's, that's where the, the question sits around yeah. your ability yeah. to transfer all the knowledge that you have, all the rugby knowledge, all the off-field knowledge to players like me who would need it, for example. Yeah. Look, I mean, I would, I would never, ever take that off the table. And, um, you know, I've also, I've also you know, there's, a, there's a small piece of me, a small part of me that also would love to have a crack at coaching, even if it was at a junior amateur level where, you know, it was, you know, purely just for the, the joy of it, you know. Um, uh, but the coaching thing is it's just such a roller coaster ride. It's, it's, a, it's a tough gig. Coaching is a tough gig. And um, I would never do anything like that while my kids were still at school. It's just, just too disruptive. You see over club, you know, that's, you know, that, that's, that, that's certainly not something that I would ever uh, not sort of take out of the equation. But for now, I've been very, very fortunate. I had three amazing years. I learned a huge amount at the Sharks. You know, I probably would have stayed there a little bit longer if it wasn't for the, the fact that my kids were young and they were, I was missing quite a bit of stuff. And, and also at the time, I, I, I did have to unfortunately make the realization that in my 
time as a CEO, whether it was three years or five years, there wasn't much more I could be able, I could do with the state of where the game was at the moment. Yeah. You know, so it's it was a phenomenally educating three years. I learned a huge amount. It was an absolute blessing to get that opportunity. And then this this next role was far different um, from a business point of view, but exactly the same as captaining a team or, 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 or of, of a rugby team. It's just people, you know? So the CEO role sounds so fancy and it sounds so sort of, but I know nothing about security or cleaning of facilities. Um, I know something now, I've been doing it for, for almost two years, but it really is just around managing people and egos and just like it was in 2004, bringing all those people together who are good at what they do, who know what they're doing, you know, and that's really what I've been doing for the last year and a half and in, in a very, very big business where there's a lot of responsibility. We've got just under 6,000 people out there that, that are relying on us in, in, a, in a time like this where COVID-19 is changing the world. So it's perspective. You know, it was, it was such a big jump to go from rugby player to CEO of, of a rugby team. And it was an even more monumental jump to go into a, a big, big business like the one that I'm in in SSG and, uh, and try and replicate the same things around how you treat people and the environment you create. So whether, how successful I'm at that, I guess, is only something you can ask the people around me, both at the Sharks and now at my new company. But it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal journey, which I'm very, very fortunate to have been on. It's, it's amazing. I think, you know, probably fitting that we just rounded off there. And I'd like to just take the time to say a massive thank you for coming on. Um, it's one of rugby's biggest legends, one of the most cap front rowers um, in, in the sport. And, you know, hopefully one day you can teach me a few of those stories about Camp Stalingrad over a, over a Clippies. Anytime, mate. You've got you to set aside a whole hour for some of the highlights from that. Uh, highlights, low lights, I suppose they're hand in hand. But yeah, Camp Stalingrad's a whole episode on its own. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time and wishing you and your family all the best. Stay safe. Just a quick one to say a big thank you to John Smith for coming on. Really interesting insight and we really appreciate you being a guest on the show. Off the back of that, please keep an eye on social media for information on how to win the Wales Yard Stash. Thank you.